Welcome to the Well Simple Magazine podcast. I'm Devin Friedman. Okay, on one hand, this episode is about Anthony Bourdain. You probably know who he is. Before his death a couple years ago, he was maybe the most famous chef in the world. He had a TV show on CNN, he wrote books, but he came to that success relatively late. This is the story about his relationship to money and how bad that relationship was for most of his life because of the way chefs live and because of his problems with addiction. But this is also a story about a woman named Lori Wooliver, who you probably do not know. She's the person who wrote this piece with Bourdain. That's often how they worked. She was Bourdain's right-hand woman for years. Books, TV production, pretty much everything in his life. It was an intense and highly intimate job, and her whole life was wrapped up in his in some ways, personally and financially. And then he was gone. To start the episode, Lori's going to read the piece she wrote with Bourdain, Stick around afterward, and I'll talk to her about her relationship with him. I don't want to sound like I'm bragging about this, but the sad fact is, until 44 years of age, I never had any kind of savings account. I'd always been under the gun. I'd always owed money. I'd always been selfish and completely irresponsible. I grew up decidedly middle class, At the time of my birth, my dad worked days in a printing company and nights at a Sam Goody record store. My mom was a magazine and newspaper editor. My parents were not good with money. My father was a dreamer who didn't seem to think or talk about financial things. My mother was far more organized, but I think her aspirations outpaced her ability to pay. They bought things they couldn't afford. They put me in a private school, and I know they had problems paying the tuition. I had a paper route at various times. I was a bicycle messenger in New York during summer and Christmas vacations. I was a shitty messenger because, free in New York without supervision, I'd just buy loose joints for a dollar and go to the grindhouses, where it was a triple bill, Bruce Lee, Melvin Van Peebles, and a revival film, all for three bucks. The drinking age was 18 at the time, and somehow at 14 I could pass. As a bicycle messenger, you only worked as much as you liked, so I worked a little. I was not exactly the most motivated bicycle messenger in the world. I was aware that I had far less money at my disposal than just about everyone I went to school with. Most of the kids at my school got a sports car as soon as they got their permit. Most came from broken homes but lived in fabulous houses. They had lives unbothered by loving parents, where they were free to watch pornography and do drugs and misbehave. I envied them that. My friends could afford weed and cocaine. That was certainly a motivator, maybe a bad one, but a not unimportant one. My friends could afford drugs. I could not. I grew up in Kennedy times when it was repeatedly assured, almost as a birthright, that all children would have better lives than their parents. So it was assumed that I would go to college from the very beginning. And somehow my parents paid for the brief time I was enrolled. I I don't know how they did it. I wasn't asked to contribute. I think they recognized that I was a lazy, good-for-nothing shit who could not be counted on to raise money for college. During my second year, I approached my parents in a vulnerable moment. They were struggling to pay tuition, and my brother was about to start college, too. He was going to do well. I clearly was not. I was a waste of money and of an education. So when I said, I'm going to drop out, I'm sure they were relieved. 
Somehow, they found the bucks to pay for cooking school tuition, which was also hard for them. In cooking school, I'd work weekends in New York as a cook. I think I was paid $40 cash per shift, which was a lot at the time. I made extra money by playing poker and AC Ducey, another card game. I may or may not have moved a little product. I graduated and went right to work, five, six days a week, often 12 hours a day. At first, after taxes, I never went home with more than 120 bucks. Not a lot of dough. I was staying with my then-girlfriend. I scrounged. Slowly, over time, I transitioned into a rent payer, such as I could. I ate most of my meals at work or from the falafel place, the bagel place, or the diner. Weed was a major expense. Before I reached the point where weed made me paranoid and agoraphobic, it was costing me a few hundred dollars a week. Looking back, the fact that I'd been smoking weed heavily since I was 14 might have had something to do with my relative lack of ambition. Just saying. I didn't put anything aside, ever. Money came in, money went out. I was always a paycheck behind, at least. I usually owed my chef my paycheck. Again, cocaine. Like I said, until I was 44, I never even had a savings account. When I was a working cook and chef, going to the Caribbean was always the great indulgence. I'd find myself either with a fresh credit card or maybe having somehow paid down the previous one, though I don't remember actually ever doing that. We'd go to the Caribbean, stay as long as possible, and burn through all the credit on a card. I'd have to quit my job to go, but when I came back, there was always work. I changed jobs an average of about once a year. I was constantly in debt. I published a few books before Kitchen Confidential, but they were not financial successes. I was given a $10,000 advance for Bone in the Throat, which I split 50-50 with my old college roommate, who got me into book publishing. For the second book, Gone Bamboo, I probably walked away with around eight grand. When Kitchen Confidential was published, I hadn't filed taxes in about 10 years. I was seriously behind on rent. It had been about a decade since I'd communicated with American Express in a timely manner. In my daily life, the goal was to muffle the anxiety that I'd feel as I tried to drift off to sleep, knowing that at any point, what little money I had in my bank account could be garnished by the IRS or the credit card company. The landlord could kick me to the curb. That was my reality for many years. At the end of my cooking career at Layal, I went home with about $800 and change per week after taxes. Briefly near the end, I got on the group health plan. Before that, I had never had health insurance other than at the Rainbow Room, where you went to this horrifying union clinic. There were set amounts paid for different types of injuries. A guy caught his finger in the oven door and yanked the tip off because there was more money in a partial amputation. So health insurance has been this incredible new thing for me, in my life only since about 2001. I think living like that made me very cautious. I held on to my job after Kitchen Confidential came out. I was hesitant about whether I should leave the kitchen, and I waited as long as I could. I was old enough to realize I'd been handed this incredible lucky break, and I was very unlikely to get another one. There was this weird moment where I noticed that everyone in the dining room were journalists waiting to talk to me, and I realized I'd become the sort of chef I used to despise. 
constantly having to leave the kitchen to deal with journalists. I didn't want to be that guy. So I left. Once I did that risky thing, leaving the only profession I knew to become a professional writer and TV guy, I was, and continue to be, very careful about the decisions I make every day. That was really the first time I started thinking about saving money, about not finding myself in that terrifying space, that uncertainty that goes back to childhood. Will the car get fixed? Will we be able to pay for tuition? In very short order, I contacted the IRS and I paid what I owed. I paid American Express. Since that time, I am fanatical about not owing anybody any money. I hate it. I don't want to carry a balance ever. I have a mortgage, but I despise the idea. That was my biggest objection to buying property, though I wasn't in the position to pay cash. The reports of my net worth are about 10 times overstated. I think the people who calculate these things assume that I live a lot more sensibly than I do. I mean, I don't live recklessly. I have one car. But I don't deprive myself simple pleasures. I'm not a haggler. There's not enough time in the world. I tend to go for the quickest, easiest, what's comfortable. I want it now. Time's running out. One of the wonderful things about my agent, Kim Witherspoon, is she always presents me with two options when approaching a business deal, particularly when it comes to books. She'll say, look, you could go with these guys and get a whole shitload of money up front, or you could go with these guys, which is the morally right and loyal thing to do, and negotiate an amount of money that fits in with what we actually think you're going to sell. I like to make money for my partners. Publishing is filled with stories of people who do well with a first or second book, then get like some huge advance that they can never earn out, which leaves them and their publisher in a bad place. You spend a year of your life or more writing a book. You get a chunk of money and they put it out there and the overwhelming likelihood is you're going to get very little back. My books do very well, but it's probably the least profitable thing that I do. I like writing, but writing your way to riches isn't a reasonable life plan. For me, it's responsible for everything, though. I started out doing book tours. They became too big for the bookstores, so they would rent halls, which would fill. Those numbers grew and grew, and people started booking me for corporate events, which were incredibly lucrative. And then people who promote concerts and musical acts approached me. It quickly became clear that, like the record business, there ain't no money in a record. It's the tour. The biggest revenue stream out there for me is going out and telling dick jokes. It's physically and mentally punishing and takes a lot out of me, but it's over in a relatively short period of time. I like my daughter and her mom looked after, both while I'm alive and after. They shouldn't have to worry if something bad happens, so my investments and savings are based on that. I'm super conservative. Money doesn't particularly excite or thrill me. The making of money gives me no particular satisfaction. To me, money is freedom from insecurity, freedom to move, time if you choose to make use of time. My investments advisor understands that I'm not looking to score big on the stock market or bonds. I have zero understanding of it and zero interest. Life is too short. I like a limited amount of mail and a limited amount of conversations with people who make the investments. 
If the money's not less money every time I look at it, I'm pretty happy. If it's a little bit more, great. I kid that I like to be a patriarch. I like the idea of retiring on a hilltop surrounded by people I care about. But the fact is, I like working with the people I work with because they're talented people who could easily make just as much money working elsewhere, if not more. The people who work with me on my TV show in particular, these motherfuckers could get paid a lot more money making a less good show for somebody else. So the pressure's on me to be the sort of person people will want to stick with. Nobody likes paying high taxes, but I don't mind. Maybe that's a luxury, but I don't need to hire some hotshot to spend 12 hours a day figuring out how to chisel the government out of an extra few thousand dollars. If getting that extra money means a lot of phone calls and talking to financial analysts and lawyers, I don't want it. I don't want to have those conversations. A friend said, you live outside the country more than half the year. Create a bogus residence in the Caymans and pay no U.S. taxes. I'd feel like a shit doing that. I'm an American. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to have those kinds of conversations. I'm putting myself to sleep just thinking about it. I'd rather make a lot less money. It's honest dollars. Everybody gets theirs. My partners make money. I make money. The government gets theirs. If they call me in for a full audit, great, here I am. It's all there. I lived a lot of years afraid of the bank, the landlord, and the government calling. Nowadays, it's nice to not be afraid. I mean, I think the question that everyone wants to know and that you've probably been asked a million times is, what was Anthony Bourdain like? What kind of guy was he? Ah, uh, you know, the great thing about Tony is that he was very much the same guy, regardless of setting. He didn't have sort of a phony persona that he would put on for television or he would, you know, be a certain way with different people. He he was somebody who absolutely was who he was 100% of the time. And and I think really knew who he was and kind of moved through the world like that. I think the thing that people are always surprised about and that I was surprised about when I first got to know him was that he's a pretty quiet, shy and in some ways very awkward person. So what was your relationship to him um, in the last years of his life? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll say, I, I, I'll sort of tell you the the, the whole story. Uh, I, I met him in 2002. He was looking for someone to help him edit and test recipes for his first cookbook, which was called Anthony Bourdain's Leal Cookbook. And I got to know him a little bit there, but he was very busy. He was already traveling a lot. So most of what we did was through email exchanges, and we met a couple of times. Uh, then there were several years where I went off and did other things. I worked for magazines, and then I came back around and needed a part-time job and reached out to him and a number of other people saying, here's what I can do. You know, I just had a baby. I need to work part-time. If you know of anything, please let me know. And he got back to me right away. He was like the first and maybe only person to get back to me and hired me as his assistant. 
which was first a part-time thing and then kind of grew into a, a fuller position. How were you paid um, as an assistant? You mean like how much was I paid or what was the, what was the sort well, of the mechanism? You know, if, if this were a money diary like you mm-hmm. did with, mm-hmm. with Tony, sure. I would ask you how much you were paid, but sure. you know, whatever you're comfortable with. Well, when we first started, uh, this was in 2009, and we were sort of figuring out how to do it. You know, he said, well, why don't you, you know, here's what I need. It's part time. This is, kind, you know, I want reservations and just someone to keep my schedule and kind of keep things in line. It's not really a full time job. Why don't you tell me a number that you think uh, you're comfortable with? And I, you know, in classic sort of like undervaluing myself fashion, I was like, how about $375 a week? Because I just really wanted the job, and he was like, "Oh, let's make it four fifty. <laughs> like it was. I think he couldn't, in good conscience, pay me as little as three seventy five. Uh, so I started out four hundred fifty dollars a week. Does that sound right? I guess that's right. So I should also admit that um, you are not a stranger to me. I've known you for for many years, several mm-hmm. decades. Mm-hmm. I would I would I venture to say, and that you've had a really interesting career. Which I know the course of, but I w- and you've sort of suggested, but can you just tell us a little bit more about it with some maybe some proper nouns attached? Uh, yes, I, I will give you some, but not all of the proper nouns. Uh, so I, uh, I graduated from college and moved right to New York and ended up for two years working for a very high net worth family who wanted a cook. So I did that for two years. I was a full-time employee of this massive staff, just just cooking for them and making sure they had their groceries and making sure that their, their household was kind of running smoothly in, in conjunction with a lot of other people who had uh, a lot of education and a lot of student loan debt. And so we're working for this this family. And so it was like an army of overeducated people in debt working for some rich people. Exactly. Yeah. So um, and so, how long after that were you? Um, did you become the assistant to the the chef of the '90s? Really. So I did that for two years, uh, and then I applied to work as Mario Batali's assistant. I started at the very beginning of 1999. And he was at the point in his career where he wasn't a household name. I think he was on the Food Network, but it was not the thing that it became. So to my knowledge, I was the only person who applied for the job, and I got it. Uh, and so you've, you've, you've worked for um, these two sort of high-powered, for lack of a better term, celebrity chefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess my question is, you know, I, you know, I remember from working in glossy magazines myself uh, that I, 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 I used to say that I, I were I was fake rich mm-hmm. because I got to do all these things that rich people got to do. Mm-hmm. But you were also always aware that you were an imposter and that it wasn't really yours. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you had that experience living in in those worlds that you lived in. A hundred percent. I would say more with the wealthy family and with Mario than with Tony. Um, I grew up very middle class and, uh, you know, I had student loan debt and, uh, and really was scraping by paycheck to paycheck. And then here I am 
You know, I mean, it just to be around that kind of wealth and to just sort of work through in my mind, like what it meant and what things cost. It was it was hard to adjust to, you know, Um and I think as, you know, being young and inexperienced, I think it also kind of led led to a kind of resentment. Like, these people have so much and, you know, it's ridiculous. Like, and then, you know, being very judgmental about what they spend and what they spend it on. And, you know, it wait, took me... Wait, 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 Are you <laughs> telling me that you've gotten over resentment? <laughs> Through the miracle of 12-step life i've i've i wouldn't say i'm completely over resentment but i will tell you i've i've made a lot of progress in that area if you can believe it or not you know it's like i mean i learned i learned from my first few jobs that like your money is yours their money is theirs and it's the best thing for everyone is to keep it really really separate so tell me how long um before Tony's death, did you interview him for this piece? So this was about a year and a half before he died, or a year and a quarter, if you want to be very precise. I'm really, I have like a weird savant kind of memory with dates. So I know that it was uh, February of 2017 that I interviewed him. And I think the piece ran in March initially, and then he died in June of 2018. I noticed in the piece that he made a couple of references to the fact that, you know, life is short and time is running out mm-hmm. and I want my daughter taken care of if anything bad happens. Do you think that he was someone who was really quite aware of his own mortality? I think he was aware of his mortality in that he was, I don't know, I guess 60 at the time that we did the interview you know, and he would he had said this on the record at any number of times that he probably should have been dead, you know, a long time ago because of whatever adventures he got up to in his life uh, before and even after he kind of made it as a as a writer. You know, he'd been on some very sketchy airplanes all over the world and in, you know, certainly in his younger days in, in various, you know, drug uh, purchasing situations that might have been a little sketchy. So I think he felt like any time that he had, you know, going forward was kind of gravy because he had survived so many kind of close calls. Right. Um, so your life was so wrapped up in his and then all of a sudden he's gone. And even like on a practical level, it's like, are you... Do you file for unemployment or do you continue to collect a paycheck? It's like in my mm-hmm. job, if if my boss died, I, it would it would have no bearing on my mm-hmm. on my life, on my on my financial life anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like that's got to be an, a weird experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sure was. And it was. Um, yeah, it, I didn't really have anybody to ask or I didn't have any examples to look at uh you know because it was a it was a one to one situation you know I was I was employed by him and just to sort of compound it I I had just gotten divorced or I had just gotten separated a month before he died so I had just moved out into on into an apartment on my own for the first time ever and was, you know, settling in for all of the com- complicated financial stuff that happens when you divorce. 
I just thought, what am I going to do? You know, leaving my marriage was hard. And I had spoken to Tony about it. And he said, don't worry about money. You know, if you need to borrow or, you know, whatever it is, we'll figure it out. Don't get a shitty apartment because you feel like you can't afford one. Get something that's good and safe for you and your son that's in a place that you want to live. And, uh, you know, you're going to be fine. I've got your back. So that was the state of mind that I was in, you know, for a month of like, well, this is this is a huge change in my life. But at least financially, I know I've got Tony. And then he was gone. And with it, this job. So I was lucky. I think I had I had another probably three or four months of salary before that ended and and a a few more months of health insurance before that ended. So I had to sort of figure it out. And the day that he died, I I sort of had to I said to myself, well, I guess I'm a writer now. I guess I'm going to be a writer now because I, you know, my job is done and I can't imagine. It's not to say that I might not in a year be out there looking for a job, but I'm I am trying to uh, financially make it work as a writer. Pay me. <laughs> Anybody well, want to pay exactly. me? I can't believe that we haven't talked about your book already because we should be out there selling it. I'm a firm believer that no one should be out there selling themselves shamelessly except for book authors because yeah. book authors deserve everything they get. Tell us about your book. Well, as it turns out, there are actually two books uh, just through the uh, everything that's happened in the past year with the pandemic. Uh, It turns out I have two books coming out in the same year, which wasn't the original plan, but that's what's happening. So the first one that's coming out in April is called World Travel and a Reverent Guide. And that's co-authored with myself and Anthony Bourdain. It was something that we started planning before he died. And then in the fall of 2021 uh, is going to be Bourdain, the Oral Biography. I believe that's the official title. And that is interviews with people that knew him uh, at every point in his life to sort of tell more of his story. He was, you know, very generous telling his story in Kitchen Confidential and in subsequent books and on television. And, you know, he was very generous putting himself out there. But uh, I, I came to understand that there was a whole lot more to the story than I knew. And I thought I knew this guy really well. I mean, I was... His assistant for almost a decade, I knew where he was and what he was doing every minute of every day. And we were in, you know, pretty regular daily contact. But to talk to childhood friends and cooks from the 80s and guys that did television with him and his first ex-wife and just kind of everybody, I really got a fuller picture of who he was as a person, what motivated him and kind of how he how he lived his life. So is there anything from the piece that you still think about? Any Anything that he admitted or advice that he was tacitly giving that you still think about? Yeah, you know, I, I really, uh, I always try and remember his, uh, the, the sort of clear-eyed sense that he had that it was better to just be on the up and up, pay your taxes, pay your bills, don't, you know, carry huge amounts of debt, just that the the payoff in a lack of anxiety and a just a knowing that you're moving honestly through the world, largely unencumbered by debt and, you know, possibly dishonesty, it, you know, that 
I always try and remember that, you know, when it comes to tax time, it's like, this is what it is. This is the contract that you make working and living in this country. You pay your taxes, you know, that. And also, I, I really, when I worked for him, I really appreciated his lack of interest in haggling uh, because that meant that I didn't have to be out there spending a ton of time trying to shop around for the best price on things. Um, I don't think I took advantage of that, but I, I so, as an assistant, I so appreciate that he was somebody that had money and didn't want to waste a lot of time trying to hold on to every last penny of it, you know, that he was willing to kind of, you know, just spend what it took to enjoy the what he knew was the limited time that we all have on Earth. The piece is really great, and I don't think anyone else could have done it, and mm. I thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. This is Devin Friedman for the Well Simple Magazine podcast. Join us on our next episode when former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke shares his delicious gluten-free lasagna recipe. 